This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th, along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring. It's available wherever eBooks are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Eric Shaw Quinn. Christopher Rice. I have been told. Oh, my God. That you have a new television show. Oh, yes. This is not an ad. I thought, This is like, not an ad. Oh, my God. What have let, I done? Let me be clear before we start. This is not an ad. Not a paid placement. This is But us. we'll take all the money you want to send our way, Amazon. <laughs> exactly. We're totally in the best television show I have seen in years. Okay. I mean, I could not, I cannot believe how great this television show is and that we didn't take even a moment to look it up on IMDb before we started talking about it so we would be able to give credit to, proper credit to the people involved in creating this amazing show. And it's it's called Mafia Wives, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Changed our lives. Big Ange, Team Big Ange forever. No, it is called. so absolutely not what it's called. It's called Deadlock, and it's a joke title because it's lock like Loch Ness Monster, L-O-C-H, not lock like L-O-C-K, but it's deadlock double entendre because Mm -hmm. it's also there in a murder investigation, um, and they can't make forward progress. They're deadlocked. They're two different detectives, and they're deadlocked in their pursuit of this investigation. Well, why don't you tell us more about the plot? Because I'm a little tired from after lunch, and I'm going to lie down here. (laughs) I'm going to the hand cream room for a little break. Um, um, It is like... It is that rarest of things. It is somebody has decided to do a send-up of a genre, and they actually did a good job. I think comedy, for all intents and purposes, is dead. <laughs> like now, currently, Currently, it's dead. in our current everywhere. culture. Dead everywhere. Dead everywhere. I think that um, Judd Apatow has killed it. Between okay. him and Saturday Night Live, I think they've murdered comedy. How? It's, How well, have they murdered comedy? Everything has become an ad lib. Everything is, like, we're no longer scripting comedy. We're, like, putting clever people on camera, and they're saying the that most facile, easy thing they can think of on the set, and everybody on the set thinks it's funny, and so then they put it in 
the final product, and then that's what you get. So it doesn't advance the plot. It doesn't have anything to do with character development. It is only about what these particular actors or performers are coming up with is funny. And I think a lot of those actors and performers are very funny. I'm an actor and performer myself, and I'm pretty fucking funny. And it does not equal having a a competent writer mm. come up with a script that is actually funny but also advances the plot and develops story and character and those mm. kinds of things as you go along you and with a murder mystery it's almost impossible i've watched right. tiffany haddish and tina fey both of whom i are comedy icons who i have endless respect for both do a complete shit job of this very same thing trying to do a comic version of a murder mystery. And for this reason, because it all felt ad-libbed. Because and like it was it no ad-libbed and unscripted yeah. and stupid. And and it it in the t- case of Tina Fey, at least, it was also an attack on murder mysteries. Which rather, she rather does. Than, rather yeah. than being, making fun of the genre itself, it's actually an assault on the genre. How so, though? I'm well, interested. Everything was just this sort of on-the-nose kind of stupid... Um, like everything everybody did was stupid, ill-considered, and the wrong choice. So the detectives were all fumbling incompetence, or beyond that, right. you know, or just literally doing so. Everything they said was wrong. Somebody gets crushed by something rolling over them, which was easily preventable, but nobody does. It's just mm. it, you know, it has all of the comic flair of a Saturday, a badly done Saturday morning cartoon. I don't want to harsh Saturday morning cartoons. I've seen some brilliant ones over the years. Really? Um, yes. Okay, and That's um, another episode. That's another episode. Yes. But this is about um, a murder in a small... I assume they're in Tasmania. I honestly yes, don't know. they are. I've watched a few. I'm a big fan as well. I'm not finished. It You're a, finished. But a, they are in Tasmania. Yes. A, it's a small coastal town in um, Tasmania and... They don't have big crimes, and they discover a body, and so whoever is in charge of police for the island of Tasmania, the island kingdom of Tasmania. Oh, God. We, you know, we just got a lovely gift from Down Under. We should know more about Down Under, God damn it. Well, it shouldn't be so fucking far away. If it <laughs> wants us to know more about it, it should get a little closer. Um, no, I just genuinely don't know. Anyway, um... Whoever the the big authority is sends a big city detective to deadlock the small town. Where have you heard that before mm-hmm. in the title? Um, like Broadchurch, except mm-hmm. deadlock, um, to help out with the investigation. And they are two women, and they are I cannot think of two women like that is the only thing they have in common. Mm-hmm. It is purely a genetic Y X, yeah. X chromosome kind of thing with them. Like that's it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing else. There's no level of, and and it's just brilliant. It is one of the most brilliant. I'm going to name them now because they should be um, Kate McCartney and Kate McLennan are the creators and writers of this series, and they are. Geniuses. It is just genius. It is not only endlessly, brilliantly funny and very perf- funny, and the performances are beyond stellar. Mm-hmm. Just spectacular performances from everybody across the board. There is not a weak link in the chain, um, and it is also a really good spine tingling, edge of your seat 
murder mystery that mm-hmm. is still unfolding and being investigated by these two women in this small Tasmanian village. It is it is everything. I could not like I literally had to force myself to only watch one episode a day because I would have just sat and watched the show. It is just spectacular. I I can't think of the last time I've enjoyed probably Watchmen mm-hmm. is the last time I have watched a television series that I haven't enjoyed enjoyed as much as, as this. It was just brilliant. I'm only three episodes in, but let me share my my thoughts is that it I, I agree with everything that you said and the genius of it for me is that it is filmed, it is scored it has all the mood and atmosphere of the show that it is satirizing. Absolutely. But the performances are utterly com- com- uh, committed, and they're not played for wink, 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 I'm making a joke. No. But it absolutely is a satire of the broad church genre of crime thriller. Absolutely. Hysterically. It's hysterically funny. The small town interactions of mayor and uh, forensic examiner yes. and medical examiner totally. and detectives and— Oh, it is just brilliant. It is just fucking brilliant. I, I, I cannot say enough nice things about the okay. show. I just adored it. If you've not seen Deadlock, it's on Amazon. It's free with Amazon Prime. Treat yourself. Yeah. I just can't recommend it highly enough. Absolutely. You know what's coming up next week? It's our 200th episode, and we have planned a sound effect. We are going to play. <laughs> We've gone all out and said, hey, Brandon, see if you can find some needle drop We shit. need something for our 200th episode. You got some kids yelling? I don't Although, know. I'll tell you, Brandon is pretty amazing with this sort of thing. Christopher yes. once said, I need a turkey apocalypse. And that was the only direction that Christopher gave. That was and it. we got Brandon, a turkey yeah, apocalypse. It was apocalypse. astonishing. It was for a Thanksgiving episode, it, I assume. No, it was, well, way dumber. It was for a sketch that I wrote that I, I really think I half-assed it, but it was like a TV show for, a, for a turkey apocalypse. I think that was an ad for a show called Turkey Apocalypse or I something no like that. I have no idea. I thought it was a yeah. context. There was also, what was the drag queen direction? Oh, I needed a, a van with drag queens on the roof of it, Um just being drag queens. I need a drag queen sounds in the back. And, I cannot yeah. remember, but it was another of those moments of like with minimal, almost no direction whatsoever, we got award-winning sound effects. So I actually am looking forward to maybe not our 200th Listen. episode, but certainly the sound effect. I'm Surely you're sick of us by now, but the sound effect is worth tuning in for. I, I'm going to suggest that given our own descriptions of our past comedic sketch work here, that, that we are also to blame for killing comedy in this country. I'm sorry. We were very funny. <laughs> we were very funny. Don't yes. you don't you dare. We had our off weeks. Like if we, but we were mostly funny. If we'd gotten it, if we'd really gotten our big break, we could have really saved comedy. <laughs> Is that all right? I'll go with that. That sounds We fine. never got our big break. Yeah. I always thought that the dinner party show would get discovered by a larger end Lauren Michaels or John mm. Stewart or a larger entity. Mm-hmm. CBS um, yeah, Paramount. I thought you were going to keep going. There. NBC. Sorry, you stopped at CBS. I was, I was trying like, oh. to think of another. Uh, yeah, no. They didn't have streamers back then. But something, but it was at an age we started that show too soon. I'm convinced nobody did podcasts. It was mm-hmm. not a thing. And we didn't even call it a podcast when we started it because that was not really what podcasts even no, were. we were streaming it live over our website. We didn't want to do a podcast. We thought it was giving it away. I mean, we weren't charging people to stream it, but we were trying to make it an appointment for people Sunday evenings. And, and we were thought we were, we thought that's where radio was going. Yeah. So we did the show live. We were told that's where radio yeah, was going. Yeah, which is yeah. what we were doing. So we did the show live, and 
those comedy sketches. The last few episodes of that show are some of the most brilliant comedy stuff I've ever heard, if I do say so myself, and I do. You do, yes. Because it was really, we had evolved those characters and that notion and the, the whole development of that show was really, so you I know think, what's something special. What? We, I think we have a different audience now. Oh, I think so. Uh, we really do. Because they hated Jordan they, Ampersand. We brought Jordan Ampersand, our special correspondent, back, and they were like, who is this guy? Get him off. We want to hear you guys talk about crimes. Like, you want to hear us? We thought that like we weren't enough. We, were we thought we were to, boring. Yeah, we were coming for something more fun. And, oh, God. Yeah, and used to be Jordan Ampersand was the star of the show. The star of the show. Okay, but we're going to get back to the crimey crime, crime, crime stuff. And I, let's, I'll tell you this. I have recently joined the TikTok machine, which was a huge mistake. It just is really fraught. Uh, yes, in a long line. It's been about mistakes. a year. It's been about a year since I've been on TikTok, if you can believe it. Yeah. Really? Because I'm getting ready to go to the conference as, as of this recording where some friends made me join TikTok in the hotel lobby there. So I know it's practically the one-year anniversary, maybe just shy of that. But if you if in the you, lobby, in the was lobby, there like a machine where the, you join TikTok. In or? the lobby of the hotel, we were all hanging out, and I was like, "TikTok is for old people." And they were like, "Excuse me, give me your phone," and they signed me up for TikTok right there. You meant TikTok is not for old people. I said TikTok is not for old people. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, That's so an old person mistake. Here's here's my point. If you go on TikTok, there is one. Yes. If you go on TikTok and search any real popular true crime podcast, you will find scores of people who hate it <laughs> and are trying to cancel it. And and I'm, I'm relieved that we are not that popular yet because nobody's trying to cancel us on TikTok. But they're all trying to cancel My Favorite Murder and Morbid. There do, are people who are just like... Do, do they not get the... That you can just not listen to it? It's an idea that is... They all... That's how they start. I stopped listening because... And then they go into their tirade oh, that's about... that's it. I'm done. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, good. You shouldn't listen. Like, that's right, a, that's exactly. a thing. Like, if you don't like something... Should, I don't like bananas, and so... I don't, I don't have bananas, but I don't lecture other people who eat bananas or yeah. harass people for banana sales or banana right. pudding service on their menu. I, Stop bananas! I just don't have bananas. Mm-hmm. That's been enough tomfoolery, Eric Shockwin. That's been enough chit-chat. Oh, then I can go home now? You can go home. Because I'm, I'm vice president in charge of tomfoolery, I think. I'm going to read my notes aloud, and that's just going to be how we do the show from well, now on. that should get us canceled pretty quickly. Then. But I'll, that's most— I'll, I'll call TikTok when I get back to the house. Hey, TikTok, you might <laughs> want to tune in on episode 199. I think it's over for— But, but that's all the most popular true crime podcast, Crime Junkie, is, is they just read— and they, apparently they read some other people's journalism without crediting them. Like they'll oh, have a, a that's not cool. That's she, not okay. They'll, they'll have a back and forth like a fake conversation. She's just reading a script about a crime, and then her friend will be like, "Oh my god, did they really do that?" Yes, they did. Let me explain. I was like, "This is the most popular true crime podcast on the internet." So it's sort of like audiobooks. Well, but shorter. Yeah. Right, like because it's articles and not books. Right, audio articles. Audio yeah. articles. So, yeah. Yeah, okay, so you don't have to read the article. Audio bites. We'll, we'll read it to you. Yeah, no. We don't do that here. If you want the information— We you, also don't use other people's copyrighted material without their permission. I, well, the, I hope. God, I hope. Well, the whole point of what we do is we break down a TV show by name, by title. We give you the episode number and the season number. And uh, where to stream it here in the United States, which is constantly streaming, uh, changing because the streaming world is a mess right now, as we've oh, said God. repeatedly. 
Only in Los Angeles. But if you want the information about the crime here, you have to wade through our fiery, outrageous, nonstop opinions and commentary because that's the point but, of a podcast. But if you want our order for lunch, you kind of have to do the same thing. <laughs> just a different setting and they're not microphones involved. <laughs> all right. That's kind of what it's like to be around us. All right, all right, all right. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. We were once caught on the tea aisle at a neighborhood grocery store by a mutual, I'm going to say acquaintance, he wasn't really a close friend, but he was completely taken with how totally absorbed we had become in the topic of tea. Yes. As we stood there debating the merits of this tea versus that tea and whatever. And that's kind of how it always is, the intensity. So with that in mind, we will bring that sort of intensity to bear on... Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club is serving up an episode of a series called Murder Under the Friday Night Lights. The episode is called Where is Tom Brown? It's streamable on probably multiple platforms, Max, Discovery Plus, the free Discovery ID website that you always reference... And it's season one, episode two of that show. I think there is only one season of the show. It's relatively new. And this is also a podcast. This story is, a is I think, going to go on to be one of the great, uh, great is not the word necessarily, but one of the most talked about unsolved cases. So spoiler alert, it's unsolved. Um, well. In, yeah, Eric has opinions, as we're going to find out, as we always do. Uh, but this is going to be one of those talked about cases because it is so weird and it's so about a community and it's so about there's so many potential suspects and it lends itself to conspiracy theories, which is a part of the story that we're going to talk about today. So and there is a podcast which I've listened to called Tom Brown's Body and the host of that podcast, I think not just the host, but kind of the creator is a big part of this special, which I liked because it meant they were getting different points of view and consensus about this yeah. story. Which and one was the Tom Brown's body? Sk- let me scroll down. Where is his name? Skip Hollinsworth. Oh, okay. Who's, if there is a crime in Texas, you will hear Skip Hollinsworth's mellifluous voice talking about it. This is not the so only... So he's, the, yeah. he's the, the person who does the Tom Brown's He's body. a big journalist okay. in Texas. He's okay. a, Yeah. There's another... Uh-huh. There is a story, that makes sense. There's a story of some disappeared uh, women in South Texas that he has been all over with some other journalists. He is just... He is the Texas crime guy. Okay. Okay. So uh, let's get right into the story. This is a potential point of confusion. (laughs) 20 minutes later, let's get right into it. (laughs) Potential point of confusion. This story takes place in a town called Canadian, Texas. Which I thought was so outrageously funny. I kind of took me out of my 
my serious side for the first 10 minutes because they kept saying, like, the football team is called the Canadians. They kept referring to the Canadians, and it cracked me up every time they did it. It reminded me of that episode of um, uh, Prairie Home Companion where he's talking about going to college with his uncle whose name is Senator. Mm -hmm. He's not actually a senator. His name is Senator, which he thought was terrible. And I was just thinking the Canadians, the Texas Canadians. So at no point, regardless of anything we're about to say, does this story go to Canada? They have nothing to do with this. Do not blame anyone from Canada for this story. It's Wednesday, November 23rd, 2016. We interview a young man named Tucker Brown who says that he was visiting home on Thanksgiving Eve and planning to spend some time with his brother Tom. Tucker wanted to watch a movie, but Tom had been in the house all day, and he wanted to go out and have some social time. And what we soon learn in this town is considered social time is driving around and listening to music with your friends, which is and what probably Tom smoking pot. Penny Meeks, but they don't say that. Penny Meeks, Tucker's uh, uh, mother and Tom Brown's mother, as we will learn, says that Tom left the house at six fifteen, maybe six twenty, to go and hang out with his friends. The last thing Tucker said to his brother was, I'll see you later. Uh, And they uh, know to this day that Tom went for a drive with two of his high school friends, Christian Webb and Caleb King. We interview a young woman, also a high school student, classmate of theirs, Brittany Hastings, who is identified as a Canadian high cheerleader of the class of 17. And she tells us that Tom had a regular route that he liked to drive around town that would take them out towards the Canadian Bridge. See why we made the big disclaimer it's, it's about coming. Canadian? Yeah, it's just going to, it just keeps coming. Another student, Harrison Colwell, or another classmate, I should say, I don't think any of them are currently students. Uh, he's, he was a Canadian high offensive lineman with the class of 18, and he describes, he also confirms that this is a route that Tom would drive around town. Not much to do in Canadian Texas other than football games on Friday nights and going for a drive. Wasn't this where they pointed out that there was more seats at the football stadium than there were residents in the community? I think it's later, but yeah, they say they have three, a seating at the stadium for 3,000 people which is several hundred more than the population that actually live there. So you get a sense of the scope of what's available in Canadian Texas. Not a bad thing, but a very small and quiet place. Tom had a curfew of midnight, and he'd never broken it. When he's not home that night, Penny gets immediately worried and starts texting him. He's not answering. Penny's second text doesn't get delivered, but I'm assuming the first one does. Uh, she says teenage kids don't turn their phone off, and I assume that means you don't turn your phone off unless you want your parents to come and find you wherever you are and get you in trouble. Well, apparently, yes. His brother Tucker goes looking for him. Uh, Penny calls Caleb, one of the friends that he was supposed to be going for a drive with, and Caleb tells her that the last time Christian and Caleb saw him was when they said goodbye at the middle school parking lot and were going their separate ways after taking the night drive together. Brittany, the cheerleader interviewed earlier, tells us that everyone in town knew Tom. Everybody thought he was outgoing and lighthearted. He was class president for two years, and he loved football, and he was a starter his senior year. Uh, This is the point in my notes, right? The stadium in town has 3,000 people, which is 300 more than the entire population of the town. Right. Uh, We interview a local resident named Dela Cates, who I guess it looked like she ran some sort of cat grooming business. I couldn't tell if it was a bat or a barbecue stand. I thought it was, I would have gone with fast food of some sort, but yeah, cat grooming seems a little um, out there for 
the Canadians. I think that it's probably a little small. I'm not sure you could support yourself grooming cats in a small town in Texas. Who knows? But uh, we also meet Skip Hollinsworth, who we talked about earlier, who's the host of the podcast Tom Brown's Body. Mm. Uh, He's giving us some background about the football culture there, but also he lets us know that Tom was basically replaced as a starter um, on the football team after the beginning of the year, and he is devastated, and he decides to quit. But he's the reason he is replaced is because the coach says he's replacing him with somebody he trusts more. And that is never explored. That is really an interesting choice of yes. words. Mm-hmm. Thanksgiving morning now. The year's still 2016. Penny calls the sheriff's department and says her son is missing. They show up an hour and a half later, which is a very long response time for a very small town. You could have driven to Houston, I mean, for heaven's sakes. The deputy who shows up is named Pine Gregory. Tucker volunteers to take him around town and show him the spots where Tom liked to hang out. They drive around for hours. They find nothing. The deputy finally says he's going to take Tucker home because he's going off duty, but the sheriff is coming on shortly. One of the biggest traditions in Canadian football is to have a short practice on Thanksgiving morning. Is this a thing you'd ever heard of with small-town football teams? I'm sorry. I'm still Eric. (laughs) Tell me the list of people you think would talk to me about small-town football (laughs) traditions. I don't know. Because I'd like to know who they are because nobody ever talks to me about football at all because they know I have – Absolutely no understanding of football okay. or why anybody would watch it. I, I, I'm I the one who said, oh, we're the ones in the green jerseys, okay. which I don't know which episode that's on, but I've told that story I bet before. you, I bet you our local straight man, Brandon Griffiths, is just dying to weigh in on whether or not small towns have. He's saying, he's saying in our ears that he has never heard of this. This is not. A, this is a Canadian tradition and not a small town tradition. I will look in my porn novels about um, high school football teams yeah. and see if it's mentioned there. <laughs> that's, I think that's going to be as close as I ever get. So um, the, at this practice, the coach lets them know that Tom is missing and asks them all to join in a prayer because it's Texas and they pray in school. And um, it's about being thankful for being on the football team, which yeah. I assume is – it doesn't seem like it was much of a practice. Yeah. It, it was, was just short sort of practice. a fellowship gathering with people that you're thankful to have in your life or whatever. But yeah. So um, we interview a, a family friend named Eva Hammer who says the word spread very quickly throughout the town that Tom was missing. Uh, we're introduced to a local radio host who's actually pretty influential in the community, Chris Samples, and we're told that everybody – I can't remember, east of the panhandle, tunes into a little radio station uh, hosted by a local DJ named Chris Samples whenever he's every weekday morning. And that's uh, Skip Hollinsworth who gives us that information. Yes. And I was like, a radio show in 2016. All right, let's hear it for Legacy Media. Yeah, and I would think that would be an effective thing in a in a community this size. It's sort of like the morning announcements at school. Like yeah. it's a small enough group of people that you could actually probably fit in the useful information for the day. And it's the it's the hub of Tuna, Texas. It is Greater Tuna. Greater Tuna, yes. Okay. So appearing on the radio show is the recently elected Sheriff Nathan Lewis, who will become a major player in this story. He's a young man. He's only been in the office a few months. 
And uh, we are told via title card on the screen of this special that both he and Deputy Pine Gregory refused to be interviewed, which should tell you a lot about where this story this is. is that's one of the first rules of true crime TV. So he begins a series, what will become a series of appearances on this show where that I would amount to is sort of nothing to see here, everything's fine, ma'am, you know. And he starts to basically... Uh, I would say his first appearance is about trying to send the impression that he does not believe a killer is loose in the community, which I imagine would be everybody's first thought, right? Because a killer is loose in the community. Clearly. So, yeah, I would think that would be a real concern since there's a missing dead person involved in at the heart of this story. So law enforcement searches Tom's car, which is found... It is found in a very weird part of town where people do not normally hang out by some sewage pits. By I the think sewage pond, yeah. yeah. Like it's the last place anybody would go. So it's not dumped in the pond, but it is adjacent to it. And there's no reason for anybody to have been there. Certainly not Tom. There's a small smear of blood on the handle of the driver's side door, which is Tom's blood. There is a small 25 caliber casing. Well, it's a 25 caliber casing. I don't know. <laughs> That's the size. It's it may be as caliber. big as an elephant gun, yeah. but we don't know about what calibers are. But yeah, and Tom doesn't own a gun. Yeah. So it's not his. A pack of bloodhound dogs tracks Tom. Tom sent, I should say, east of where the vehicle was found, and they come to a dead end at the water of the marsh. The cops tell the family there's nothing left for them to do, and they bring them back the car in a day's time. And even the family is astonished. That they've already processed it, that they're not going to keep it impounded for later forensic testing of any kind. They're just done with this car. It's the only piece of evidence, but they're done. Because they weren't, like, beating on the sheriff's door saying, when are we getting that car back? We need need that car. We got to go get groceries. And, yeah, that wasn't happening. So they were really surprised they brought the car back. Days go by. Penny is concerned about the lack of progress in which she sits down with the sheriff. He says to her... Well, when we found the car, I just assumed Tom committed suicide like your dad did. And she killed him. She didn't. She didn't, but literally. Her reaction was about that volcano. Right. I would have killed him. Um, So the story here is that Penny's mother was a teacher at the local high school, and the sheriff was a student there when Penny's father uh, ended his life. That's some small-town shit, huh? So Penny is absolutely furious to have this thrown in her face the first time she's meeting with the sheriff about this case. She says Tom was not remotely depressed. Um, He had begun, in the wake of leaving the football team, he had joined the theater department in the community. He seemed to be happy. He was about to start uh, in the fall production. And Penny's point was, how do you know it's a suicide if there is no body? Right. They haven't even proved that he's dead yet. So they're already uh, diagnosing this as suicide, and they don't even know that he's dead. He could be kidnapping. That could be the diagnosis because he's missing. That's the only information they actually have. It turns out there's even more history with Penny and the sheriff. One night... The sheriff was out on duty when he was a deputy before he got elected, and Tom and some of his friends were hanging out downtown, and he accused them of trying to break into a theater on Main Street. And for reasons that are not entirely clear, he singled Tom out of the group and ordered him into his car and was apparently cursing at him a lot. And he proceeds to question Tom about what he was doing that evening, to which Tom says... Our friend's family lives in the apartment above this theater. We weren't trying to break in anywhere. We were accessing the door that goes from the street to the second floor of this building. 
So Penny is pissed, and she takes it up with the sheriff's department at the time. So there is already bad blood, and there's never an additional explanation on why the sheriff gave Tom so much grief that night no. or what was really going on with the two of them. <clears throat> no. So Penny hires Philip Klein, a private investigator who specializes in missing children and being very, very, very loud about his work. <laughs> Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice. But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online. We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website. Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com slash Anne Rice fan page, no spaces. If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her characters, then join us at Anne Rice fan page on facebook.com. See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases. Which you'll give me copies of because I'm sitting right here. Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? <laughs> So into the small town of Canadian Texas comes, comes the private loudest private investigator. Private, I don't know what private, what was private about his investigation. <laughs> he rolls up in a black SUV, walks right into the sheriff's department and says to the sheriff, I'm Philip Klein and I'm here to solve the Tom Brown case, which pisses the sheriff off. Which was kind of his point. I think he was intending to do that because the sheriff is the problem yes. in this particular investigation. Um, so interviews have continued. In and the apparently there weren't three billboards on the outskirts of town I know. that uh, Penny yeah. could buy. Right. That's a reference to the movie Three Billboards. That's and, correct. Uh, what's the name of that movie? I, three Billboards Outside Some Small Town. That <laughs> That's not the I name of the movie, the Derek Chalkwin. Know your references before you bring. Don't go off half-cocked. This is a serious podcast. All right. Oh, well, then I, I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong studio. I've got to go. <laughs> You built this studio, Eric Shawquin. Okay. Rock and roll. So, um, <laughs> gray slick joke. We do not drink and we do not smoke weed. We're just weird. That's a good. That's something you need to remember about us. Okay. So they've continued to interview people, and Tom's friends all say he was not showing anything that looked like suicidal ideation or behavior or even expressing suicidal thoughts. The friends who were with him that night said he was acting normally during the drive they took around town. 
But within a month of Tom's disappearance, that's how much time has gone by. Nothing is happening in this Three case. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. That's it. That's what I thought. That's right. It's a yes. small town that you've never heard of Absolutely. Before. Ebbing, Missouri. But we're in Canadian, Texas. And within a month of Tom's disappearance, the sheriff goes back on Chris Sample's radio show and claims without any apparent evidence that Tom hitchhiked his way out of town. After committing suicide, apparently. I, I, it's like one of those stories that just keeps growing. January 27th, 2017. Tom has now been missing for two months. A workman for a local power company who's checking electrical lines comes across a backpack which has books and a laptop inside of it, and it's sitting in a perfectly upright position. It is Tom's. It's been there for a while, and it's wet. A forensic lab doesn't turn up anything of note on the laptop. It has not been used since the disappearance. The distance between where the car was found and the backpack was found is five to six miles of rugged terrain. You'd have to cross the Canadian River, and you cannot cross the Canadian River on foot. It gets, it's not the Mississippi, but so, it gets deep. Yeah, Philip describes it as if you could fly, because you'd actually have to go up to the bridge, cross the bridge, and then walk back down to where it was. So it was probably way more than five miles. But the point was, it's not somewhere he could have left his backpack and then walked to the car or walked there with his backpack and set it down or anything else, it's nowhere near where the car was found. Philip Klein brings a cadaver dog to Canadian and it tracks on human death scent which is different from the bloodhounds that were dispatched at the beginning of the case. They were looking for the scent of Tom himself. This is about death. The dog goes nuts on Tom's car suggesting that a dead body has been inside of it at some point. They ask for permission to let the dog smell the backpack which is in police custody and the sheriff won't allow it. This is the beginning of Philip Klein saying there is a cover-up going on with law enforcement. At the sheriff's department. At the sheriff's department in Canadian, Texas. He goes on the radio and points out that Tom's credit cards haven't been used, and he had no cash on him when he left, if he left, when he left the house and was never seen again. Um, he becomes a receptacle for every rumor in town, and the online chat goes crazy. People hang banners around town that say there's a killer among us. Because they don't need a billboard outside Ebbing, Missouri. They just put up their own banners, right? Yeah. Uh, justice for Tom, or what is it? Where uh, is Tom? Or prayer? I think it's prayers for Tom. But they show a lot of different billboards with a lot yeah, of different they, slogans. They, but it is really like there is a killer loose in the city. Like there is something wrong. So Skip Hollander, our, our, our steady podcast host, um, does a summation of all the quote-unquote crazy rumors that start circulating, which were all my current theories of this case as I, I was watching say, this. I did not come away from this as a big fan of Skip's. <laughs> I thought he was a conservative um, dad type who wanted to shout you down as a means of being right rather than actually presenting any real proof. I was not impressed with Skip. Well, I think some of that's the editing because Skip did a better job on his podcast well, I than hope he was allowed so. to do in this show. Because he just dismissed any sort of any kind of question of the sheriff seemed to skip in this particular production to be ridiculous. It was just a lot of harebrained, crazy, they, you know, it must be her time of the month stuff. Right. And not any real viable stuff, even though the only person who's a viable suspect in this case is at least the sheriff, if not the whole sheriff's And that's department. what the rumors were suggesting, that Tom was part of some sort of gay sex human trafficking ring oh, that the that sheriff was overseeing. But that the sheriff, at this point, I'm thinking about the Jesse Valencia case that we talked about on episode 28 of this podcast where a law enforcement officer and a gay college student in the town were having an affair and this college student threatened to out the police officer and the police officer murdered him. 
and is in jail yes. for it. So yes. I'm thinking, this is really weird. Like, because because mm-hmm. anyway, so the town is split between people who are pro sheriff and people who are anti sheriff. Uh, Klein, the private investigator, claims that the sheriff is lying about the extent of the search that they conducted in the area of the backpack where the backpack was found. So he organizes his own search, which includes 150 volunteers who gather on Lake Marvin Road to search for Tom's body. Klein gets a call claiming he needs to go to mile marker one immediately. And it is there that they find a rose-colored iPhone in pristine condition, in pristine condition, and it is Tom's phone. He's been missing at this point, what, a year or months? I mean, he's been missing a long time, and yeah. his phone is in pristine condition. The FBI confirms it's Tom's phone. Um, yeah, we're nearly at a year at this point. Some people believe that Klein, the private investigator, planted the phone. Penny believes the sheriff planted the phone because the police kept asking her for the passcode earlier in the investigation, even though they had not said to her that they had the phone in evidence or that it had never been found at all. The sheriff claims he involved the Texas Rangers in his investigation and his search, and it's ridiculous to imply that the Texas Rangers would be involved in a cover-up. Penny starts a Facebook group trying to get the state attorney general's office involved. She is eventually successful, which is why the special then introduces, I think, one sergeant and then another investigator from the Texas Attorney General's office who visit Canadian to find out what the hell is going on. And one of them is named Sergeant Rachel Calding, and the other is Mindy Montfort. So they decide to polygraph Penny about the phone. Because that has any sort of relevance in the investigation whatsoever. Like, polygraphs are inadmissible, inadmissible yeah. and nobody thinks that Penny is responsible for the disappearance of Tom. So what this has to do with anything except trying to indict her opposition to um, what is currently being done with this investigation, I don't know. This is about trying to indict a witness. I, I don't know if I skipped over it or not or if we're going to get to it later, but there's no point in not bringing it up now. The theory that the sheriff's office has started to put forward is that Tom killed himself. Penny discovered that he had done it. She couldn't accept it because she was still so traumatized by her own father's suicide, and she hid his body somewhere to cover it up from the town, which is just the most absurd theory and I've ever heard. And then called in the state AG right. to investigate it, wouldn't stop talking about it, and started planting evidence because a parent would actually leave their child's body out to rot because they had an, a bad experience with their father's suicide. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. That's like, do you not even know who people are like, or well, how people work? It was also illogical. Let's say she was that depraved and she was going to cover it up. She would go around telling everybody Tom ran away. He hitchhiked to town. I don't know. We had a falling out. And that will lead me to the thing that they left out, which was included in the podcast, which I will get to. In okay. All right. So this investigation by the Texas Attorney General's office is happening. They've polygraphed Penny. This Her polygraph up. shows <laughs> shows deception. Um, the AG, the Attorney General, could not substantiate Penny's claims that the sheriff's office had asked her for the passcode. So they're now saying that she's lying about having the passcode requested of her. Um, uh, Mindy Montfort, who is a special counselor for the office of the Texas Attorney General, tells us that Penny herself had asked Tom's friends for the passcode to Tom's phone. So we're talking about a passcode when we should be talking about a dead kid. Or um, at least looking for him. 
the sheriff is also polygraphed, and the sheriff's polygraph also shows deception when it comes to the phone. At any rate, phone, 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 polygraph. Sergeant Calding says that Penny was, in fact, the first one to bring up the prospect of suicide in her interviews with the police. I'd love to know how they're interpreting that. Like, was she asked about her fo- Anyway. Um, just bullshit. That's just bullshit. But here's the thing that jumped out at me. So Tom uh, supposedly did Internet searches for suicide hotlines on his phone at approximately 9.11 p.m. the evening he went missing. And there are three entries. But he didn't call any of them. So... We, we know that somebody had Tom's phone who dropped it in the woods during the search a year after. And on the night he went missing at 9.11 p.m., which I believe he wasn't accounted for, I'm assuming it was after the drive, somebody who possibly has his phone and later drops it maybe was doing these searches, you know, planting these searches for Internet hotlines, right. suicide and hotlines. and later, or was considering suicide after murdering Tom. Yeah, um, and for whatever reasons that was, and then later when the search was going to hap- uh, going to happen from the uh, Philip Klein, they planted the phone to be found as part of a different investigation rather than having it found on them. Although I have to say, with the Canadian River running right through the middle of town, if I was looking to get rid of a phone, that's where I would have gone. January 2019, Detective Pine Gregory, the deputy who showed up the night of his disappear- Tom's disappearance, is taking an hour off from duty to walk through a wild area of town looking for deer shed, and he comes across an assorted pile of small human bones. The AG investigator's office responds, and they identify the remains as being Tom's. So three amazingly found by the detect the deputy who was in, took an hour and a half to drive across a town of fifteen hundred people to show up for the missing child report in the first place, just happens to find where the body is. Three years after he vanished, they went three years before any remains were found. Okay, but the remains give no determination of the manner or cause of death. In August of 2019, the Attorney General's office meets with the County Sheriff's Department. They conclude that the sheriff had nothing to do with the disappearance of Tom or his death. The conclusion is that there isn't a conclusion. They don't know what happened to Tom Brown. But it had nothing to do with the only person obstructing the investigation. In 2019, the Texas Commission on Law Enforcement found that Sheriff Nathan Lewis had falsified several officers' training records. Days later, he resigned. So he, they got Capone on tax evasion. They got Sheriff Lewis on falsifying records. So at least he's not the sheriff anymore. Falsifying what records. What re- was revealed in the podcast that we did, were not privy to in this particular Well, it was, it, they documentary. didn't do a whole episode about it, but it was included, which is that Tom had begun wearing women's underwear and talking to his friends about it. And his mother was made aware of this after he disappeared, that there was apparently they didn't come right out and say he was gay, but that he was experimenting with his sexuality. He had left the football team. He'd left that environment. He was in the theater group. It was a different group of people. He was exploring himself. Um, And that was not touched on anywhere in this special, which I thought was doesn't quite rise to the level of erasure like we've seen with other stories. but. 
I thought it was but worth he, including. But some sort of that he was conflicted about his sexuality or his yeah. identity, at his least. His gender identity, maybe. You know? I, yeah, like I just, that's at least relevant to talking about the disappearance of a kid, but none of this seems to have been about him being upset. Like, none of this seems to have been about him being, you know, in the depths of depression. He was off to, he was opening a new show in another week or two. Like, he was in the midst of his life. Yeah. So... If you put the pieces together after the fact, you have bloodhounds early on in the investigation suggesting that Tom got out of his car, walked to the edge of his marsh, and somehow disappeared into thin air. Then you have his bones showing up three years later in a completely different area. Absolutely. Miles and miles from there, not yeah. even directly accessible. You'd have to go into town, cross the bridge, and then walk back up to where the bones were found. And you have his, his backpack appearing somewhere else, and then his phone appearing somewhere else. This is not resolved. I mean, it's just one of those mysteries where I, I can't wrap my head around. What do, you, what do you think happened? I mean, if you were put on the spot, as I'm putting you on the spot now. Oh, well, I don't know what the motives were, and I think your suggestion is as interesting as anyone. He's having an affair or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, there was enmity between Tom and the sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. Right. Particularly that deputy who later went on to become the sheriff. Right. I think that he dropped his friends off. He was going home. There was some interaction. Mm -hmm. And it may have been because he was meeting up with Sheriff Nathan to continue their big affair. That was why Sheriff Nathan called him into the car to begin with. You know, I have no idea. Or it may have been a continuing Hassle identifying him as a problem, that the sheriff identifying him as a problem and continuing to hassle him, mm -hmm. um, that at some point in that particular um, interaction, things escalated and Tom was killed. Yeah. And then the sheriff's department set about to cover up the crime. They took his car to this strange place and left it there. They you know, ditch some other stuff at another place and they put his body in a place they thought people would discover it because it was at the park and they didn't mm -hmm. uh, discover it, which I think probably screwed up their plans more, but and maybe not because let me they couldn't you identify. You're, you're saying was, they, so you think the deputy was in on it. The deputy who took so long to get to her house was yes. probably involved too? Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that the sheriff's department was complicit. I don't know to what extent, but at least those two men yeah. had something to do with it, particularly since one of those two men is who found the body while he was looking for deer shed mm -hmm. um, all that time later. Like, I just think that's... Preposterous. Yeah. Um, I the the disbursement of his belongings all over town yeah. in inaccessible, unrelated areas, and the complete absence of any sort of investigation into what happened to this child ever. Mm -hmm. There was never any investigation. Like, are there suspects? Who are they? Were there strangers in town? Was there hitchhiking? Was there traffic? Was there, did anybody see anything? Did anybody, like, there is no evidence of any knowable investigation of this crime, whatever the crime was, at the time of the disappearance of the child. You no, know, like, I know. All we get told over and over again about the investigation is they keep turning up people who said he was not depressed and he did not appear to be suicidal. And 
you know, he says, he, I just figured he killed himself. And then I just figured he left town in a whatchamacallit and, I, you know, with a hitchhiker. And I just figured, like, but what did you do that was actually about investigating those particular circumstances? Mm-hmm. What, if anything, did you did you go to every um, gas station along that road and ask if they had um, a, a security camera footage right. that you could look at that maybe you'd see him driving by in a car or getting out of a car, going into, you know, like nothing. There is nothing done to actually investigate this crime by the only people who seem to me to be viable suspects. I might be less suspicious of them if they had made any effort to investigate the crime in the first place, but they didn't. All they did was say why they weren't yes. investing the, investigating the crime. Or if they had said nothing, if they had said, you know, I can't answer it, we're, we're, this is an active investigation, but he was so quick to go out there with an unfounded narrative to the public. I think that's what did him in, even if he wasn't guilty of anything. It just looks suspicious. Shut up about this case. Yeah. One like, of the two of them killed him, right. and the, both of them were involved in covering it up. And it may have been because he was having an affair with the deputy or with the sheriff, or it may have just been an animosity and antipathy between that kid and that and the the law enforcement it happens mm-hmm. you know but it was something that happened on his way home from dropping his friends off there was an encounter with the sheriff's department because there's no evidence of anything else and who else would he have yeah. stopped for it isn't like he would have pulled over to the side of the road to be by, murdered by some stranger mm-hmm. um so the sheriffs pull him over he gets into an altercation and he in some way he dies yeah. as a result of that encounter. And it may be a chokehold. It may be hitting his head. They may actually have shot him. I doubt it. Probably something more inadvertent, brutalizing him, and he dies from the experience. And they cover it up. And mm-hmm. there doesn't seem to be any other case that I can even make of it. I, I can't even think of any other possibility, mm-hmm. not the least of which because nobody particularly the AG's office, who should all be fired. Mm-hmm. Um, and that AG is actually under an indictment. I know, right? His impeachment trial right. is beginning soon, right. I think, as we're recording so, this. So, yeah, I'm not, yeah. Really, not really keen on their findings that mm-hmm. nobody had anything to do with it. And the sheriff was totally cleared of, like, of what? I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Was he accused of stuff to begin with? Like, the sex ring thing, okay, well, that's just preposterous. Of I'm, course, yeah. I'm with Skip on that one. But the sheriff is the only suspect. Right. In this in this particular case, and no one has investigated him, mm-hmm. and I that I don't know any other conclusion you can come to. I, yeah. I didn't even see this as a mystery. Yeah, it just seemed obviously a case of police related death. Okay, yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you. I, there may be another explanation, but no evidence has been presented of anything else. Yeah. All right. Well, Eric Shawquin has solved the case as I knew he would. Um, but, you know, or I hope that there is more of a conclusion. I would say the grace note of this episode was they won the state championship in the middle of COVID. And right. Like, okay. And dedicated the game to him, didn't they? And Yeah. And that was good. I would still like to know what the – because somebody he could trust more. Like, what does that mean? Like, I'm not completely ruling out that there is some other – component to this mm-hmm. with given the level of serious religiosity around football that is that you brought up at the very beginning um mm-hmm. and at the end of last week's episode 
um, that there may have been some conviction in and around his behavior towards the team or around the team or his behavior with one of the other players or with the coach or maybe he had an affair with the coach and he threatened to tell somebody that he was having an affair with the coach. That's all possible. I also think this may be a case of what we encountered at the beginning of the episode, which is you and I don't know much about small-town football, and that may be a sort of figure of speech. I need to be able to trust my player to win. Like, that could just be a way of saying he wasn't good enough. I don't know. Yeah. That was just a weird, that's the only other outlier in the whole thing. But yeah, they dedicated the, 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 the game to him, and the sheriff is at least fired because he was clearly at least incompetent. Falsifying records, okay. Jesus uh, but Christ. But I mean, it's just, you have a kid story that's about planting evidence and just, you know, and then you get found falsifying records. I'm just, okay. Yeah. Okay. Pretty suspicious. Next week, it's our 200th episode. Oh, my God. And the debut of our special sound effect. <laughs> Which we can't wait to hear. But it will be the last in our back-to-school sequence. We're going to visit— Because you're back now, and we're sick of talking about it. We're going to visit one of the worst teachers of all time, Mary Kay Letourneau. Oh. Notes on a Scandal. It's actually called Mary Kay Letourneau, Notes on a Scandal. It's a standalone documentary that's streamable on Max here in the no U.S. no one else would stand with it. And— uh, I, this is a story, I was going to say I lived through it. That's not really true. Not really, not even I didn't even know remotely. Mary Kay, but I remember this story. I remember the way it unfolded. I remember that it wouldn't stop unfolding. I think we were all lived through it in that way. It was like, are we really still talking about this? And I will say, in this episode coming up, we meet my favorite people in the back-to-school sequence. That's all I'm going to say, and I'll bring it up again when we get there. Well, we can hardly wait to find that out, yes. but not as much as we are desperately awaiting the premiere of our 200th episode, Sound Effect. Sound Effect. <laughs> no then. pressure, Brandon. Until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> Sorry, I was sure? already thinking about the Sound Effect. Are you sure? And I'm, I believe I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to... Christopher. And Eric. (laughs) Thanks. Watch Deadlock. This is TDPS.